Welcome, guys. Thank you so much for joining us for this fantastic talk. So this week, we're going to be talking about womenomics, not only the contribution that women-owned businesses make to the global GDP, but in general, how well women are doing. We will also be hearing a bit more about Vicky's phenomenal story, another lady with another great story. She's got a great sense of humour, a very dry sense of humour, but we love it. We're <laughs> laughing all the way through. Vicky Price and I are another travelling team, so to speak. And unfortunately, I met Vicky, I think, just after I published my book. So Vicky wasn't actually in my book, but we are planning a book together. I say I haven't met her. We didn't get to know each other well because I did actually meet her some time ago when Vicky was a director of the Department for Business for the UK many, many years ago. And I chaired the Ethnic Minority Business Forum. We kind of went our separate ways and then came back together probably six or seven years ago now. But if you want to know about economics, womenomics, being a mother, being a director, being a friend, this is the talk for you to listen to. So with that, Vicky, can I ask you to put your camera now? Welcome. I've met you a few years ago at Trade Global. So I am, uh, yes, I was already sold that, that day. So I hope, and no, no, I know the rest of our tribe will share my and Yvonne's vision about you. So I think the stage is yours, the digital stage is yours. Are you ready? Yes, I am ready. As you heard from Yvonne, I'm Vicky Price. This is my Wintrade Global Talk, and I'm delighted to have been asked. I have to say, looking at who's spoken, of course, I know a number of them. I also know Antonio, of course, and Carol Stone, who spoke to you last week, I think, who I've also met you know, quite some time ago. And it was interesting thinking about how you combine economics with your interest in women and how they do economically, of course, but also fairness and what have you. And I remember I was at the Treasury at the time, the UK Finance Ministry, uh, giving a talk about productivity because I was also responsible at the time, would you believe it, for uh, the productivity of the entire nation and how we were doing. And I was judged by how well the economy was behaving there too. It was another of the jobs that I had. And I gave this little presentation and Carol asked us a question about women. And I wasn't the only one on the panel, but there were a number of other men. And I think she didn't get her question answered. And I said, of course, women are very, very important in terms of helping productivity. And your point is absolutely valid. And she, of course, decided that was the best thing since sliced bread. And she became a very good friend after that. And it is indeed the case that women's voices are often not heard and women's Issues are often not heard, but I'm sure what is going on under Yvonne's leadership here is reversing that trend and making sure that all these issues are raised almost you know, every week when you're having the sessions. But also, I know very much that this is the case in her daily uh, work as well, and it's brilliant what she and her team, in fact, have achieved. So Yvonne asked me to talk about partly what I've been doing, but also, I talk about the economy. I am an economist. There is no way I could give a talk right now without uh, saying what's going on, but also looking at what's happening in relation to women. Now, I'm a working woman myself, 
and I have been an economist all along. So I look at everything from that perspective. I worked in the private sector. I was a chief economist in one of the city banks. I then moved to being a corporate economist for one of the oil companies, then moved to being a partner at KPMG, then worked for the government, which was really quite interesting for me, very different, where I was, in addition to my productivity duties and director general of economics in the business department, I was also joint head of the government economic service, which was really quite an extraordinary position to be in since I had 1,500 economists who were supposedly anyway sort of working under me, but they were so brilliant. It was the most fantastic period of my life. I then had a bit of a setback in my career. I got personal experience of prisons and I spent a little bit of time there. I immediately researched uh, what the impact is of the current systems that exist on women in particular, but the economy as a whole, and wrote a book called Prisonomics. I then wrote quite a lot after I came back to the private sector, where I still am. I'm chief uh, uh, economic advisor in a firm, and I'm also a board member, and I sit on loads and loads of various organizations to do with economics and management. I've written quite a lot about the, the crisis, the euro crisis. I've written a book on, on Greece, or rather Europe overall, called Greekonomics. I've written also a book for voters called uh, It's the Economy Stupid. And more recently, not only have I done quite a lot on regional issues and manufacturing, but also focused more, once again, on women. I've written a book called Why Women Need Quotas. And my latest one is called Women Versus Capitalism, which is basically arguing that the capitalist system we have is not going to achieve global gender equality. I looked at loads and loads of different countries and what they're doing, unless there is serious government intervention, take restrictions away from women being able to contribute to the labor force, educate them better, and take away quite a lot of the, the biases that exist. They won't happen naturally. The pricing mechanism won't do it. And we'll have the effort to get the government intervention to achieve this. Throughout that period, of course, I had a particular affinity with women who have children, but not only necessarily those who don't. But I have five children of my own. And by now, I have so many grandchildren that I can certainly have a football team uh, starting. So a mixed one, of course, boys and girls. So it has been a, an incredibly busy time, but it becomes much more easy to bear, particularly given the current shocks we're having in the economic system and more generally mental health issues and so on that are also affecting women a lot. Uh, it's made easier by having friends um, and networking and friends like Yvonne for networking more generally. And what has happened in this COVID period is that through all these mechanisms we're using IT and so on, we've managed to keep in touch with, with many and in fact, uh, getting to know a lot more. So it's not all bad. Um, I'm actually an optimist at heart. Whatever setbacks you get, in my view, you can do something about them. And I think as women, if things are negative in terms of how they're affecting us, uh, we can always move on. Uh, and I'm actually um, in disagreement with the, 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 the lean-in approach, which is that you can influence organizations from the inside if you're all determined. I'm actually more of the uh, lean out view. In other words, if you find that you're hitting your head against the wall, then you move somewhere else because unfortunately there are loads and loads of both obvious and not so obvious biases that are out there, unconscious or conscious or otherwise deliberate, which make life difficult and what you need to do is overcome them. And, and frankly, we also need to adjust a little bit. And I know having produced a number of children that 
if I kept producing those children in one particular place, I would be basically seen as a baby producing machine. And and I knew that uh, however enlightened my organization was, I couldn't necessarily influence what everyone else would be thinking. So I just moved jobs each time just to make sure that this was new and people just accepted me as, as I was rather than seeing me sort of constantly having children. I have another one in another place. And actually that worked and it worked very well. Now, throughout that period, of course, I continued to worry about how women were doing. I was very determined to succeed in the man's world. And I was the first woman, chief economist, for example, in a government department I joined. I was the first woman to the head of the government economic service. I was the first female master of one of the guilds in the city of London and so on. And that's quite nice. Uh, of course, when you think about it, is terms of what you have achieved. But the really pleasing thing is that once you start it, then it all follows. So I was followed by the second female master ever in that guild that I joined, the, the, the worship company I joined. It wasn't exactly a guild, but it's like the old guilds. And the people who succeeded me in the government economic service who are doing it jointly are two women. So there's a lot to be gained by having role models that people can emulate. It doesn't always work in all sectors. But nevertheless, despite the progress that has been made, we are still lagging behind, as we know. And the economy and the crisis we're going through right now is making things worse. And, and what I want to talk about a little bit in my next few minutes is how it's all been affected women. And we've had recent data here in the UK that is suggesting that the younger generation is suffering particularly, and it's absolutely true. I think the younger generation below 25 are twice as likely to have lost their jobs, find it much more difficult to get another one because a lot of the jobs that they were doing have disappeared, follow the low-paid jobs, uh, have disappeared, and that will get worse. I mean, look at what's going on in Europe. There are a number of people who are watching this who have come from elsewhere in the world, and we have seen that coronavirus is, is spreading rather fast again, and we've had the announcements in the last day or so of lockdowns in places like Germany and France again, not as strict as before, but pretty bad, nevertheless. And everyone is now talking about a W type recession. We were improving for the summer months, but now it looks like things are slowing down. Uh, and what we've got in places like the Eurozone is actually a reversal of the growth that we saw in the last few months. Yes, industrial production in October still looks good. But if you look at the sort of flash estimates of what the entire economies are, are doing, uh, what you find is that it's moving to negative territory again. So we might find that November and December are pretty bad. That's going to be affecting uh, the young particularly, but interesting enough, also the older generation, those over 55 who, as they lose their jobs, we find that they're the ones probably at the more expensive end who also find it hard to get jobs again. But what about the women? What we find is that underneath all this data, women across the world, if you look at the United Nations uh, information, are twice as likely as well to be losing their jobs. Not only, of course, have they been at the front line in terms of health workers and, and also of course, suffering from, from getting infected with a virus as well, but also they are presenting some 70% of health workers worldwide. And those are areas where people are just not being paid particularly well. If you're worried about gaps everywhere, you should look at pay gaps in the health sector, where, of course, the administrative jobs are done by people at the top tend to be uh, men. And there's also, of course, the concern of what's going to happen 
during COVID and after in terms of the future, you know, women's uh, education. The UN is uh, suggesting that some 11 million girls worldwide will leave school early because of the pandemic and many will never return. And that, of course, will affect their earnings all across their future lives. If you just look here uh, at the UK, we're depending quite a lot on childcare, which I do believe should be free for all. Nevertheless, taking children away from nurseries during the lockdown period, and that happens actually in other countries too, and, and the reduced demand that there is after, plus of course the loss in earnings that many nurseries have had, suggests that some 10,000 childcare providers may not be able to carry on in the future, and uh, 150,000 childcare nursery places may disappear. That's pretty bad for a working mother. I have always relied on children having the ability to go to a nursery. I have to say I send them from when they still needed nappies to be changed or they couldn't walk because I had to go back to work and I had to go back to work early. And I do remember actually, you know, at the very beginning, it wasn't particularly acceptable because I started quite some time ago. I married my first year, second year of university. Uh, and started having children pretty soon after I was working, though, already, fortunately. And the first time I put the first child down as doing my master's, which I was doing, as it happens. And I took some time off to, to, to take the exams. And the second one, I put it down to holiday, I think. Uh, but the time I had the third, I was working for a U.S. oil firm. And what they said is that if you come back within two months or in two months time and don't take any longer we won't only pay you the two months that you're going to be out but we give you an extra two months salary which you know having already three children by then and uh, the cost was rising was absolutely a no-brainer so i did exactly that and of course that child went straight to the nursery from a very very young age so if you take that away if you take the ability of women to be able to go back to work or even now when so much work is done from home not having any support i mean that's a serious issue and we've seen the mental health issues that women have had and you've seen across europe all the studies that are now indicating that it's women who have had to do much more of the work at home it's women who've had to reduce the hours of actual paid work and it's women who've actually uh, moved out of the labor market altogether and if that is the case then a lot of the improvement that we've seen in labor force participation but also in earnings, because once you get out of the system, by the time you come back, then you've lost that, not just the earnings you would have had over that period, but also your progression, then a lot of that improvement will be gone. And the real problem, of course, that we have is that women tend to generally, apart from perhaps the ones who are listening, now represent different type of professionals who earn probably a lot more than the average what we found is that during lockdown, what has accentuated, I think, a lot of the problems of the young and of women is that it is the wealthier who are able to work from home a lot more. The studies both across Europe, but also in the UK just very recently have indicated that the least wealthy are the least capable of working entirely from home. And the wealthier you become, the more able you are to work from home. And if you look at the percentage of tasks that can be done from home, again, it is those at the higher end of the pay scale who are able to do a lot more of those tasks at home than is the case with those for the lower end. Now, where do women or most women, in fact, fall? They fall at the lower end and they are the ones who suffer 
particularly, and there are now pay cuts coming. Not only are people getting less than they were getting when they were working full-time, if they work part-time for a firm, but even all those schemes across Europe and further afield, which are making up by the government quite a lot of the um, salaries that people would have got otherwise if they were working, it is, of course, a substantial reduction for those generally who are now getting still paid, at least under various schemes, the furlough schemes we call it in the UK, but imagine if you're at the lower end on minimum wage, you really are not doing particularly well as a result. And the TUC, the Trade Unions Congress here in the UK, has argued that minimum wage needs to increase in order to make up for the real problem that people on low wages have, which is falling into poverty. And it is, of course, women who are much more likely to fall into poverty. It is single women who are suffering most. But also, frankly, it is two working families at the lower end of the pay scale who are now having these difficulties as well, where their incomes have been lowered. And we're having a big debate here about providing children with free school meals and holidays uh, in order to compensate for that. So the lower paid you are, the worse the situation is. And women tend to occupy the lower paid areas. And that's what we need to worry about. Not only are women more likely to fall into poverty and being not only are they more likely to have mental health problems because of caring for children at home a lot more and doing all the other stuff that women do than the men. They're the ones that opt out to allow for the men to work because the men normally earn more than they do. There's still a pay gap all across the world. And that has pushed back women's gender equality in my view very significantly. And finally, I think the worry is what will happen with legislation. We've had a legislation finally put through Parliament here, which in the last couple of years has forced firms about a certain size to produce information about pay gaps that exist in their organisations. By law, it was voluntary at the beginning. I was, in fact, still waiting for the government. It was first sort of discussed that it was the previous Labour government that put it through, but it wasn't legislated until finally it was because the voluntary approach that was tried for a couple of years produced very few results so nobody would want to tell you what they were paying their men by comparison to women but of course they did finally once they were forced over 10,000 organizations produced details they didn't actually say who was being paid what it was just on average but of course if on average or the medium even if you do it on a medium basis you have very highly paid men, then obviously the gap becomes quite significant if the women you're having in there are mostly assistants. So it was found, of course, that the gap was there very significantly obvious, not just in sort of normal areas that you'd expect, but even in accounting firms, law firms, but of course the financial sector is an outlier, is even worse than all the others. Naming and shaming worked a little bit, but of course now with COVID, it has been postponed. So we're not going to know what's happening right now, whether there's been any improvement. There is absolutely no, no insistence by the government that there should be any action plan at all on how to address that imbalance that exists in pay. And that's been a serious, serious problem. In, in other countries, in Europe, they're moving to address that. We're lagging way behind in the UK on the legislative side. So something needs to be done here. So. My worry, to conclude, is that the economy is in a very worrying point right now. And of course, we're all going to see quite 
substantial increase in unemployment in many countries are happening in the next few months if the COVID crisis isn't dealt with in a way that at least gives assurances to firms that they can invest and look at hiring and so on for the future. But even if we emerge in a semi-positive way from this, I think we will have to run very, very fast to make up for the fact that women will have lost out, will have lost out significantly, and that in the long run, we may have moved back quite a few steps in gender equality, which may never be recovered. So the path to equality may not just take a hundred years, as the World Economic Forum has been suggesting, it may take many more. Thank you very much. So I will stop here and uh, it has been my pleasure. And this concludes my Winter Aid Global Talk. Thank you. Thank you. Another whirlwind synopsis summary of the state of play that we're in today. I'm running a women's global network with some incredibly brave men who join us every week. It's quite obvious how entrepreneurial women are. And I think the situation that women are now becoming more and more the breadwinners in families or the equal breadwinners in families is really quite scary thinking that, you know, you may or you may not have a job or have a client or have a stream of income. The world is a very scary place at the moment. But what I really wanted to find out is, do you think the UK would be better or worse off staying in the EU given the situation? Because this is, is going to go on for at least another year, 18 months, possibly two years. What's your thinking on that? Uh, well, I have to declare I'm uh, very much a Remainer, have always been a Remainer. It made absolutely no sense economically to leave. I think the Brits voted to leave for different reasons, none to do with economics. I think it was more emotional, sovereignty issues and so on, even concerns about migration, frankly. So from an economic viewpoint, having a huge free trade area where a company can just export without worrying at all about any obstacles that might be there, people moving around easily, capital moving around easily, of course, uh, but also having no tariffs and uh, no non-tariff barriers either, or at least mostly no no non-tariff barriers. In other words, being able to even uh, provide services. You know, you're traveling all the time, Yvonne, and look at who's joined us. You know, being able to uh, work professionally across Europe without any concerns is a very, very important part of what makes Europe strong. And the UK had benefited hugely from people coming in, from migration, from clever people from everywhere, not just from the EU, of course, but from everywhere. But we have been relying very much on talent coming in. Uh, look at the entire digital development side of the UK, the, the IT and AI. It's, it's full of people who come in from elsewhere. And also the support that we get in all sorts of other areas. In fact, the average skill level in all sectors in the UK has gone up because of migration rather than going down as some people were suggesting. So we're not been importing cheap and skilled labor. It's quite the opposite. We've been importing skilled labor, sometimes not using them properly in lower paid jobs, but they soon find their way. They soon become entrepreneurial. 
and uh, and of course it connects us with the rest of Europe. There are huge economies of scale. It's important to have a level playing field. So if you look at what's happening now in the economy and the coronavirus, then you're absolutely right, Yvonne. This is going to be here with us for some time, but you're assuming that there's going to be vaccine and that some of those costs that we're seeing at present will be contained and hopefully reversed. And indeed, we saw quite an upswing in the economy in the summer when things were relaxed, but there we are. We have to go through another bad period now. But we will get over it. That's the general assumption. Now, Brexit, the impact of it on the economy, on productivity is long term. Recent calculations, not just by the London School of Economics, but also you know, papers by uh, others linked to the National Institute and elsewhere, have all come up with, with the view that leaving the EU, no matter whether we have a deal or a no deal, is long term in terms of its impact, and its impact could well be two or three times as bad for the UK economy as COVID. <laughs> That's sad. That actually, it, it, it's not really encouraging. We, you, you're being hit twice then as a country. Well, that's absolutely true. And, and of course, you have to look at the sectors. I mean, so far, we've had a number of sectors which perhaps don't trade all that much. That's just the hospitality one. But of course, we had tourism, airlines and so on, which are quite internationally being affected. But the impact has been on face-to-face service type jobs and so on. Manufacturing has managed to recover. It's it's been in positive territory now for the last three months. It's more international. You don't need that particular type of contact, so you can do it more easily. And the interesting thing is that those are going to be the sectors, the ones that did reasonably well through the crisis, including the financial sector, which has survived and, of course, got a huge amount of liquidity put into it, the system by the Bank of England. But anyway, it's carried on because people have been needing those services. We've had IT and so on doing well. Now, a number of the sectors will be affected negatively by Brexit. So what you're doing is you're compounding the problem of some sectors by adding to other sectors that, at least without Brexit, would have done reasonably well. And now they won't. I was thinking about the fact that most of the female founders, the small business owners, they are running more social jobs and not that scalable, I would say, not that technological. So what we've seen because of COVID, they suffered even more. And my question is, as an economist, what would be the best solution for women to still, not only to survive, but also to thrive in the post-COVID times, let's go like two years later, where the women should be focusing on? Because many of, of webinars are promoting STEM uh, directions and we need more women in technology. But in, rea- in the reality, I don't see that many women, especially if you're in your 30s or 40s and you're shifting careers, it's not that easy to go into that direction. So we are still with a very large amount of women who did not grow up in this STEM sector. So my question is, how about them? Because they are, I mean, suffering again, not only twice, but three times as male uh, colleagues. Okay, well, two things to say about that. I mean, first of all, Choosing your career properly is very important. Therefore, what you study at school or university is important. And it is essential to to change the attitude that quite a lot of the sectors out there are, are masculine sectors and we shouldn't work in them or, or let the others do it. And I think we do need to change that quite significantly. And I think there are efforts to do that uh, in all the sectors. So, you know, there are women in transport, women in construction groups and so on and so forth. And I think that will gradually change and we're seeing now quite a lot more women doing maths for example and the, the one a level so this is the sort of uh, exam you need to do 
to go to university. The one A-level you do in the UK that is most closely linked to your lifetime earnings, in other words, it increases them significantly, is maths. So one would recommend that women do that. Do, do that. Now, of course, as you're actually saying, Julia, there are uh, you know, a number of women entrepreneurs who perhaps don't have those skills right now. But frankly, like all of us, I mean, I would imagine that Yvonne and you until now had absolutely no idea how to put a seminar like this together using technology. You have to turn to the people who know. So women can still have wonderful ideas, but there's no need to do them by themselves. So there are plenty of people around, particularly now, that one can turn to to make those ideas into reality. So so we mustn't despair uh, because of that. And uh, I think you heard from Carol last week, Carol Stone, who is the archetypal networker. Just network. Make sure you know what's happening. Make sure you team up with other people to push the ideas you want and do them in a different way. Uh, there have been some wonderful, wonderful examples of that. And, and I think you know, women should not be frightened by technology. They should embrace it, but also use it for something good as well, of course and shape it to, to your needs. And I think that is seriously important. And so many other women will need that type of help. So uh, what I think Yvonne and you are doing today is an example of that. Thank you so much. So it is about collaboration and then community at the end. And I think that's an important message um, to spread. You mentioned that you've written a book about prisonomics and you do tell an incredibly funny story that you did spend a short time in prison and you ended up doing the accounts or writing the business plan for, for whichever one you were in, I can't remember. But also you are now chairing, is it chairing um, a um, women? I, I'm, I'm patron of uh, Working Chance, which is a charity that finds jobs for um, women ex-offenders, quality jobs for women, women ex-offenders. I'm also a trustee of women in prison. So I, I do get involved. But I mean, I have to say, uh, going to prison isn't funny. But of course, you can turn anything into in thinking about it in a way that allows you to survive. And I think that applies for anything that people go through and, and how you you get your mind to think in different ways. And indeed, we had some amazing laughs in there. And women are so depressed when they're in prison. They absolutely need the support from others. And what I found, the thing that encouraged me about women, why I want to focus a little bit more in my books on, on that, is that they are much more supportive of each other than men would be. We're just thinking, of what am I going to do when I get out of it? Which job am I going to go to? Where shall I move to? Women are worried about their families. Uh, they're seriously worried about, you know, the impact on everyone they know and love uh, of this. Uh, and they get very depressed about it. And they do need the help of others. And what I found is that that help is coming. And laughter or finding things that are funny uh, do indeed help. But yes, I did get involved in, in the open prison I was I was in, which was like a place where people would, would work outside. They would get out of bed in the morning at 5.30, catch a train, and go and work all day, and then come back and be prisoners, which is offenders. Rather, or rather, actually, there weren't any of those things. They were called residents, which was, for me was wonderful. So it's it, there are only a few open prisons, and they are the gold standard, if you like, in my view. Not perfect, but certainly, by comparison to anything else, they're brilliant. And, of course, there was a suggestion that they should be shut. So a couple of us were involved in sort of sitting down with the governor and drawing up strategy charts, you know, the way you do them, because I was, after all, a consultant for a long time and head of strategy at KPMG for a bit. So, yes, yeah, absolutely. And and that, of course, 
you know, just, just shows what human nature can do if you put your mind to it. And it gave me huge encouragement. Fantastic, fantastic. And of course, I think you work closely with, or you certainly know of Lady Bell, who does more or less the same sort of thing, but for young people, I think, her charity is about finding jobs and placements for young people who have come out of prison. So it's amazing, you know, the work that women do, even in our darkest hour, we find something. Oh, something yeah. Good. I mean, you're absolutely right. I've spoken in some of her events and I've gone and done debates in prisons, not just women's, but also men's, because again, they need that. I've gone and given yeah. talks and it was quite extraordinary. I'll tell you a story which is relatively new. I went to give a talk somewhere miles and miles away in a man's prison. One other charity asked me and apparently they had voted who they wanted to come and speak to them the male prisoners, and they asked for me. So off I went in some windswept part of the country in the West somewhere. So I gave my talk about, interesting enough, they wanted to talk about the economy. So I gave a talk about the economy. What was the most asked question? What's going to happen to interest rates? Should we buy a house now? <laughs> I mean, it was just absolutely extraordinary. That's what they were planning, where to move to and whether they should get, you know, their friends on the outside to get a mortgage. Is it the right time to get a mortgage? Should I be selling my other house? Should I, be, I mean, I was just, you know, all these people came to, you know, surrounded me afterwards, pre-COVID, to ask, you know, about, you know, practical steps on the economy, you know, as if I was a sort of money commentator in a newspaper. It's really, really very interesting. Well, at least they're thinking of a future so that's a positive yes. thing and they're thinking yes. about you know once they get out so we've got two people who've managed to get into the room so Ingrid well I'm an educational psychologist and a family therapist and I'm overwhelmed by the catalogue of your achievements and the, the significant support that you've given to women in the workplace and your strong sense of personal loyalty is legendary and to be applauded how did you and your children cope with the necessary sacrifices you had to make emotionally and the effect of the necessary early separations in childcare placements? And have there been any long-term effects on your family? It's, it's such a good question. Uh, I mean, you could, of course, spend your life feeling guilty about it uh, and wondering how the children are going to cope. What I do know is that the evidence that has been collected so far suggests that Certainly above a certain age, even if they go to school, quite, to, they're separated quite early, going to nursery or they don't see you, they are equally happy by the time they are something like you know, five or six anyway, when the tests, various tests have been done. And they are equally good achievers. So I've read a recent report that confirmed that, and I felt much happier <laughs> that this was the case. There was also another interesting finding which said that working women spend just as long reading books to their children as non-working women who probably by the end of the day are completely exhausted after having had other kids there and just send them to bed with that and and that was very encouraging too but of course you worry so i sometimes look at the children of friends who haven't worked and wonder are they happier are they better are they achieving more i can't say that i've detected a pattern it seems to vary very significantly on the child, on how you are as a parent. But I do know that when I was traveling, and in terms of how to cope with it, I was traveling constantly. So for a while, I was head of international privatizations for KPMG when I was a partner there, which meant that I was going everywhere, Eastern Europe, 
every day during the week I'd go different place when the wall came down then it would be further away I did a lot of Africa Asia uh, Middle East India wow. Bangladesh what I would do is I would get to those places but because I was lucky and I had a team I would make the arrangements always to get back as quickly as possible. And if I found that a meeting was cancelled or anything like that, my first instinct was always, I'm not going to go and visit Petra in Jordan, even though I spent so much time in, in Amman. I would just get the next plane home. So that's what I used to do. And there would be times when I would leave the children and I'd been very upset myself. I didn't think that they would mind because they were babies. They wouldn't even notice if it was me or not. But I certainly missed them. And there were times when I was really, really upset. But my strategy was you do your job, but you get back as quickly as possible. And also I was completely in control of everything. So I remember this one time I was rung up by the sports person of my daughter's school saying, you know, little whatever, she's uh, captaining the team today in, in netball. Can you pick her up at half past five, not half past three? And and I had to sort of stop and say, yeah, it's very interesting, but I'm in Bangladesh. And, and the, the, the one at the other end nearly had a heart attack. And of course, she didn't think to ring my husband or anything else. And also, I had never picked her up from school. So it was very odd. They found the, they found the number and rang. Uh, but I felt, you know, oh my God, what will the headmistress think? What will they all think? Am I a terrible bad mother? But you've got to just get rid of that guilt feeling. Because if you have that guilt feeling, you're dead, basically. You just will carry on worrying continuously and you don't you won't do your job properly and you won't do the best for your children either. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks for a great question, Ingrid. Sharina. Hi, good afternoon. Just a quick question. You never obviously planned to have had the experience of going to prison. How did you deal with that? And how was you able to turn your life around? Because your accomplishments is just absolutely amazing and mind blowing. First of all, it's very kind of you. And obviously, you lose a few things, definitely, when you go to prison. I mean, you're viewed a bit differently. Uh, some things you would have done, you can't do anymore. But other things come your way. So that's the important thing. And you've got to think about it positively from that point of view. But of course, if, if I were to turn the clock back, I would not choose to go to prison, without any doubt. So uh, although the experience has been extraordinary in terms of focusing my attention into various things, but at the time, I had no idea what it was going to be like. Now, in terms of how did I did I take it? The interesting thing is I just spoke about traveling. So, so, so can I rephrase what I said before? If I were to choose, I wouldn't have gone. But now that I've gone, I can see and the things that I learned are just extraordinary. And my focus on, on women has been very much influenced by what I saw in terms of vulnerable people who were ending up in prison when they shouldn't have been there at all, really. They should have had support uh, in different ways and they should have been helped get jobs and look after themselves and get over their drug addictions and and the, the abuse they got at home and all that sort of stuff. But in terms of the practical uh, way of dealing with it, I treated it as if I was going away for a, a rather longish work trip. I knew I was only going to be away for a couple of months. It wasn't that long. Uh, I would pack the right things. I'd do the right stuff and I would survive it. I had been to quite a lot of quite dangerous places when I was working and I always uh, found it fine working with the people that I met there, people I never knew before in very difficult circumstances. Of course, it doesn't necessarily compare down to the last detail, but I had this mentality of survival while you're there and you survive by networking by by actually accepting your environment and by doing the right things if you like for you and, and others and it usually works so i took it as a long trip which is actually how it worked out and i came back actually you know with an awful lot more knowledge 
of human nature as a result. Uh, and that's it. If I had taken it differently and thought about it negatively from the moment I left the house with my uh, suitcase before I got to court and got sentenced, it may have been a very difficult, different outcome. If I had taken it differently, I wouldn't have been able to help others while I was there and uh, also sustain some of those relationships since I came out. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I'm one of them brave and foolish men who appear on this. And I have a, I really do enjoy it. But Vicky, my question. You're part of a band of very talented women and a massive intellect. And it's unquestionable. What I would say is what has been your biggest challenge and success as a result? And I have to ask one other thing. Because we're coming to the end of Black History Month. And Black Lives Matter has always been on the agenda. You've had the most coveted force in terms of economics and guiding this country to a better future. So what one thing would you impose on government and others? Because I see little consequence at the moment. First of all, thank you very much for your, for your kind words. And, uh, I've written a book called Why Women Need Quotas. So, and, and I've looked at the sort of ethnic minority women, of course, as well. Uh, uh, lots of people have said, why? you're not making more of this, which, of course, I touched on in my women versus capitalism point. My view has been that if you are able to push for quotas in terms of impacting on part of the population, which is a majority, after all, which is women, it's quite easy to do that also for minorities, to ensure that it's done in a fair way that affects everybody. So my view is quotas. Quotas, uh, as we more or less had them in the public sector, where we would look at our targets that included ethnic minorities, disabled, sexual orientation, and so on. I was very impressed by the way that, that the UK public sector works from that point of view, which I had not seen in the private sector. So my view is exactly the same. There, as there is bias against women, uh, a lot of the pay gap is because of biases. Only 35% of the pay gap can be attributed to other things like age, occupation, and all that sort of stuff, and professionalism, and so on. You know, all the rest is prejudices, practically. And in order to get over that, you absolutely need to enforce it by legislation. So I would do the same for, for ethnic minorities as well. But of course, we know there is a huge problem in terms of education at various levels of society, which affects, of course, you know, white boys just as much as black boys, for example. So we need to address that too. So it's not just uh, those quotas, because obviously it takes a long time for people to be able to fill those particular jobs. So you do need to have this two-pronged attack, exactly like with women. And obviously, if you have those quotas, you will encourage firms as well, which you have to meet over a period of time, to do the right training, to change the way in which they do their hiring, to ensure that whoever applies for a job doesn't have to either put their name or their, their ethnicity on it so you have a wider range of people to choose from so you don't prejudice against them immediately. Similarly with age, similarly with whether you're a woman, you can do that too. So I'm afraid it's, it's that. It's changing the way in which we, we look at people more widely so that we don't continue to end up with a lazy attitude, which is let's just hire more people of the type we know, which is white men. So that, that would be my view. I'm a real serious believer in enforceable quotas. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Vipin. So, Vicky, that's amazing. You know, when I wrote my book, I said, I think we should have quotas. And everybody at the time was, no, that's not the way. And, you know, bloody blah, blah, blah. And now nothing has really changed other than 
the women a certain, what do we call them? The golden petticoats, I think <laughs> is what we call them. The, there, are, there are about 150 women who get all the women on boards. They get two, three, I, I think I knew at one point, one woman mm. had 12 board appointments and the majority of them are white. So it's um, someone's mother, sister, wife, cousin, girlfriend. So I totally agree. We need to have a more anonymous way of looking at CVs and all sorts of things. A is that, and, the, and B uh, is really that the focus should not be on non-executive directors, which is exactly the point that you're making. It should be on executives. It's, it's well. really what happens in the firm itself. Because the reality is, this woman who has had 12, uh, others who have five or six, the chances of them being able to influence the culture of an organization are zero. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Vicky, listen, we've kept you over time. So thank you once again. Thank you so much, Vicky. See you soon. Bye-bye now. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. So, guys, I hope you learned a lot. I hope you are inspired. I hope you know more about womenomics and the impact that Brexit and COVID has on businesses. And, of course, what the solutions are. And I think what I remembered is network, connectness for help to, to survive and thrive in these quite challenging times. I'm going to say thank you all. Thank you so much, Yulia, for thank being you, Ivan. the perfect partner host. <laughs> and I will see you all next week on Wintrade Global Talk. Hey.